Hello, everybody. Welcome to Objective Religion, our podcast produced in partnership with Baylor University's Institute for Studies of Religion. I'm Dr. Frank Newport, sociologist and Gallup senior scientist. And I'm Reverend Nate Branch. I'm Presbyterian minister and campus minister at the University of Illinois. And I'm Michael Lambert, producer from Baylor ISR. And we're here just a few days before the election. Finally, Nate, we've been doing these week by week, going all the way back to August, and now we're on the cusp of Election Day, November 3rd, 2020. Good time for us, I think, in this episode to kind of wrap up the key findings uh, that we have come up with over the months and months that we've been looking at religion and the election in this year. Very interesting year for religion. It is, and in politics. And I think it's worth noting that we have recorded this uh, a little bit before Election Day. Normally we have our podcast comes out on Tuesdays, but doing that during the middle of election season doesn't seem as appropriate. So we're going to release this a little bit early as kind of a preview warm-up wrap-up before Election Day. And then after the election, we will kind of come back once we have the exit polls and review what those show. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, we always have an update on where the election stands. So, all right, Nate, who's going to yes. win? Well, as uh, To use your <laughs> words, if the election was held today, which it's pretty right. close, mm-hmm. it, it does look uh, like Biden has the lead right now. Uh, I've never seen so much trepidation. And I've been monitoring elections uh, in my position at Gallup since 1992, uh, pre-election polling and then the election. And I've never seen such a scaredy-pants trepidation on the part of pollsters and others as I have this year. Uh, basically, everybody is caveating what they are saying when they look at the polls. You see article after article saying, will the polls be wrong again this year? Uh, how likely is it the polls won't tell the truth? How likely is it that Trump will win like he did in 2016? So everybody's just kind of uh, superstitious, I guess might be the right word, or at least cautious about what's going to happen. And very few people boldly just stand up and say Biden's going to win. Uh, the polling data as of now really haven't changed. I've been monitoring the national polling, which I think is important, and Biden still has a significant lead, 9 to 12 points in a couple of polls that I've seen come out recently uh, nationally. And if a candidate wins by that much nationally, they're going to win the Electoral College. A lot of people look at state-by-state polling, and every time a new poll comes out in Pennsylvania or Wisconsin or Arizona uh, or Michigan or Florida, everybody flutters and says, oh, this, this indicates a trend and so forth. But there's naturally going to be variations in these polls uh, as we look at them. But people who put all these polls together and try to predict the Electoral College still come down that uh, if you simulate elections 100 times, you know, about 90 times out of 100, 90 to 95 times, it's Biden's going to be the winner. So we will be cautious as well. How's that? Anything can happen. We learned that in 2016. But certainly the data as of today that I look at, the polling data, uh, suggests that Biden is the odds-on favorite to come out the winner in both the popular vote and the Electoral College on Election Day. And the Senate races are also being closely watched. If the Senate flips as well, that will definitely uh, lead a change in the nation's direction. And so people are watching that one closely as well. It looks like that um, may also flip. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very idiosyncratic because not every state, of course, has a Senate race. And right. a lot of individual local factors are involved in these uh, close Senate races. But, yeah, right. it's quite possible right. uh, that the Republicans will lose enough seats in the Senate that the Democrats take over control. That's why our next episode is going to be fascinating as we as we look at what we found. That's right. Well, let's look at some, some new data that we have from Pew Research Center that's talking about the breakdown of uh, just the parties by 
faith denomination or faith belief that's kind mm-hmm. of a f- fascinating way they broke this down. You want to talk about that, Frank? Yeah, I thought it was very interesting. They took Republicans and they took Democrats and they looked at the composition of both of those uh, groups of people in our country by uh, religious identity. And some of the factors aren't shocking. Uh, but let me just say, Nate, one thing is, according to Pew's estimate, about 50 percent and only 50 percent of Democrats uh, affiliate with or identify with the Christian religion. And that's about 80 percent, eight out of 10 Republicans. So there's a huge difference right there. That's a huge uh, gap between yeah. the two parties. Mm-hmm. Well, what's fascinating uh, to me about this is that they've also tracked this over time so we can see it over in four year intervals. Uh, and it's changed over that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the biggest change, and we've talked about it, that I see as a sociologist of religion over time is the increase in the nuns. In right. ONES, those are people who, who, when you ask them what they are, say they don't have a formal religious identity. That doesn't mean they're not religious, as we talked about, but clearly many more people today than was the case 10, 20, 30 years ago tell interviewers they don't have an official their religious identity. They're not Catholic, they're not Jewish, they're not Protestant, they're nothing. They just say, I, I don't know what I am. Uh, underneath it all. That's a big change, and that's one of the reasons the Democratic Party has uh, relatively few people who identify as Christians, just about half, because according to Pew, they estimate that almost four out of ten Democrats today don't have a formal religious identity. They're nuns. Right, and the other 10% there are other faiths, which is a part that's actually grown on on both Mm -hmm. Republicans and Democrats, but more significantly on the Democrat side. And that shift of other faiths plus nuns is pushing down the ratio of Christians that make up those mm-hmm. party compositions, uh, we, we can see that pretty stark contrast there. White evangelical sure. Protestants, though, have maintained fairly mm-hmm. fairly consistent over the 12 years that they've been tracking this on the Republican side, but have about halved on the Democrat side. That's right. According to Pew, about a third consistently of Republicans nationwide going back to 08 and 2012 and now just before this election are white evangelical Protestants, about a third of Republicans, and that's only 6% now um, of Democrats. It was 11% back in 08, so clearly big changes there. That's right. So 10 things we have learned in this campaign. Let's, let's review what we've learned here and go down one by one. How's that? Let's do it. Uh, okay. Well, uh, I, I would say number one is that the, the degree to which both campaigns have focused on religion. Um, religion has been kind of bubbling under in campaigns historically, but in this campaign, we've got people explicitly talking about religious on, uh, religion on both sides. Trump going after evangelical Protestants deliberately, specifically, explicitly, mm-hmm. saying, I want your vote. And Biden, uh, more than Democratic candidates in recent uh, election cycles, very clearly saying, I am a man of faith, and I think if you're a person of faith, you should vote for me. Right. We didn't see that really with Clinton when when that campaign was run, and now it is loud and it's out there. So that's definitely a change. Um, another surprise, or not really a surprise, once once Biden had it, but another little piece of information that's relatively interesting, uh, Biden is the fourth Catholic and only the fourth major party nominee in U.S. history. Mm-hmm. Who are they? Well, we had Al Smith in 28. I rem- remember him well, defeated by Herbert Hoover. Mm-hmm. Right. JFK, of course, in 60. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Kerry, 2004, also defeated. And now Biden. Yeah. So uh, for, for a group of people who are, uh, you know, 20, 20 percent of Americans, that's interesting that only now this is the fourth. Uh, but that's been a big factor in this election. Right. And that leads us to number three, doesn't it? It does. Mm-hmm. Well, you can, abortion. Yeah. 
Yeah, abortion. Uh, because of the Catholic factor, abortion has become a key issue. Not just because of that. It's also true that uh, the Trump campaign has made abortion a major issue in its appeal to maintaining support from white evangelicals. Um, more so explicitly, I think, have I seen abortion mentioned this uh, election than in previous elections. So clearly, um, what I guess tacticians in campaigns call a wedge issue, abortion, very front and foremost uh, in yeah. a lot of people's minds in this election cycle. Yeah, and that's related, again, to the fourth item on our list, which is the Supreme Court and how that is. And that also relates to the Catholic thing. Uh, the Supreme mm-hmm. Court is skewed heavily Catholic, which is very uh, interesting. Yeah, seven of the nine justices. I've looked into this carefully. Neil Gorsuch is, is the question mark. He was raised Catholic, a good Catholic, but he went to England and married a uh, member of the Church of England, a Protestant, uh, over there, which is his current wife. They lived in Colorado, and so they began going to an Episcopal church. But uh, I saw an interview with his brother from a few years ago, and he says, I don't know if you interviewed Neil whether he would say he's Catholic or Protestant at this point. So he has gone to an Episcopal church, raised a good Catholic. So he may be a question mark. But if you just say people raised Catholic or currently Catholic, one of the two, you've got seven out of the nine justices who are Catholic. The other two are Jewish, no Protestants. None at all. And and that's, mm-hmm. that is really fascinating looking at the composition of both the nation and the and the parties not very representative mm-hmm. uh no but it uh, does highlight know, that the importance of that abortion issue for placements of those judges yeah we've talked about it in one of our previous episodes when a a conservative republican president goes looking for a conservative a lawyer or judge to nominate to the Supreme Court, they simply don't find many appropriate candidates who are evangelical Protestants, and instead they go for conservative Catholics, uh, which we've seen right. now with uh, Kavanaugh. Yeah, and they overlap uh, on those seen important that issues, now with, right? Yeah, with Barrett, and, and as we said, Gorsuch as well, and then uh, Alito, Catholic, also nominated by a previous Republican president. So the importance of the evangelical white Protestants is, is another is a point number five. That is a key group to Trump's campaign. If he makes it, it'll be because of them. If he doesn't, it'll be because he lost too many of them. Yeah. And Biden didn't uh, ignore them. Not at all. No, uh, He actually appointed an evangelical Josh Dixon um, to be his uh, faith leader. And they've reached out to evangelicals. So that's a change as well. But clearly, that's a huge block for Trump. Uh, If he doesn't get huge turnout among white evangelical Protestants, uh, he's not going to win the election. Right, right. And it does write on more than that. But that is that's the biggest piece that's on the on Mm -hmm. the line for him. Right. Uh, What's number six for us? The interesting religious background of the vice presidential candidate, Kamala Harris, on the Democratic side. Her mother was Hindu and her father was Protestant. And she, although raised with a lot of Hindu influences, according to her self-reports, is now a practicing Protestant Christian, goes to a a Protestant, maybe even an evangelical church there in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, which is very interesting. It it brings that kind of non-Christian religion influence into the candidates this year. So we end up with a Catholic, Biden. Uh, his running mate is uh, Protestant. Mm-hmm. We might call her evangelical black Protestant, but Protestant, although with the Hindu influence. Then you've got, as we talked about in the last episode, a non-denominational candidate That's in right. Trump, right? That's right. Now non-denom. Now non- That's right. <laughs> 
comma, formerly Presbyterian. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. When, when interviewed recently, he says, I've decided that I'm non-denominational, not Presbyterian. Right. And then his running mate actually was raised Catholic, Mike Pence uh, in Indiana, but now uh, considers himself to be an evangelical. So religiously speaking, a Catholic, a couple of evangelicals, and a non-denominational uh, individual, those are the four uh, presidential and vice presidential candidates we've got running this year. Yeah, and, and I think religious, from a religious perspective, Kamala Harris really brings uh, the future. Of, that's what the future of America is going to look like. Blended backgrounds, mm-hmm. blended experiences, coming from multiple directions. So I think that's both a wise choice and something that we're going to probably have to get used to mm-hmm. right? in, in uh, races to come. Yeah, absolutely. Well, get used to or well, embrace. Number seven. Right? All right. Yep. Number yeah. seven. Number seven is what uh, I think a key finding that we've discussed off and on, off and on, off and on during this uh, campaign season has been the trade-off for religious voters right. between character and policy. And that has to do with Donald Trump. Donald Trump does not have a personally religious character. He does not have a personally religious background. He doesn't verbalize what you would think would be uh, pious religious kind of utterances, right, uh, in many ways. And so, therefore, many religious people uh, have to choose between his policies and his character. Right, right. Well, he does use religious language a lot. We did learn that more than Mm -hmm. any other president. So the religious language is used a lot, but also language, which people would say is not very religious, is also used a lot, making him quite a a grab bag there. His characters often identify as not being very religious, right, not exemplary Mm -hmm. of a religious lifestyle, but his policies are in alignment. So on one side, how can you vote for this person? His policies don't line up. On the other side, how can you vote for this person? His character doesn't line up. Uh, that's right, to a lot of evangelicals in particular, going back to the Bible and say there are biblical characters who, like King David and maybe Esther, right, who were uh, not personally necessarily uh, the kind of people that you would call highly uh, moral and ethical in their behavior, and yet what they did was very positive for religion. So that's what uh, the confrontation or the, what's the correct word, the conflict that a lot of highly religious people have been looking at. Number eight. Coronavirus. That's been a big impact, and it does overlap with religion, especially because of one of the background issues where coronavirus debate has taken place is whether or not we should open churches, how we should behave in churches and faith worships, how dare the government, you know, tell us we can't worship in person, etc. from one side. So, and then how to do it safely, a lot of virtual worships. So the overlap between how we worship and the coronavirus does have an impact because it plays out in the political sphere. Mm hmm. And and not necessarily related directly to the election, but one thing that fascinates me as a a social scientist studying religion is what the long-term impact is going to be. Yeah. Uh, When people can't worship in churches, so much virtual worship, uh, when all this shakes out, let's say one, two, three, four years from now, what are we going to be looking at? A change, a dramatic change in how religion is practiced in this country? I will predict yes. How about that? Since we're looking for strong predictions, I'll make one. I predict yes, there will be changes. Well, on our podcast, four years from now, we'll, we'll <laughs> review right. your prediction, see where we stand. Right. Uh, number nine is something that's pretty broad, but I think worth mentioning, is how different people translate their religiosity and their personal religion into policy and politics in different ways. Yeah. Uh, as we've said, evangelical Protestants tend to say, my religion dictates that abortion is a main issue. Uh, some mainline Protestants, progressive Protestants say, my religion dictates that caring for the poor and inequality and minority groups and racial inequity is what my religion says should be done in terms of policy and politics. So very different translations of religion, personal religion, right. um, into uh, the political sphere in this election year. And the last one, 
the rise of those nuns, N-O-N-E-S, the ones who are not religiously affiliated, uh, that is going to change both the political fabric and the religious fabric of our nation. Is that continue mm-hmm. if that trend continues, and it looks like it will. Yeah, and and we've said before, it's very hard to target these people. Right. Uh, you know, there's not a like there's a Catholic television network. There are a lot of evangelical uh, websites and other ways you can reach evangelical. But how do you reach nuns? Right. They're spread out all over the place. A lot of young people. So uh, they're very difficult to target. Uh, if you're a political tactician trying to help your candidate reach this group, but they are a very, very significant factor in the religious landscape here in this election 2020. Right, and you can't just use religious language in order to win them over. You can't just say, well, abortion is a key issue because the Bible says so. And we can, mm-hmm. we've talked about, if you're curious about that statement, you can listen to our abortion issue as we break that down. But you can't say that to the nuns because that's not a, that's not a point of reference for them. So how do you make your same claims? It's going to have to come from completely different directions. You're absolutely right. Nate, I thought we would leave today with a final factoid or a final fact, depending on how you define factoid. little small aside here, someone was telling me the other day factoid really is a is supposed to be something that has dubious uh, a dubious basis for it, which is, so we'll say a final fact about the two candidates this year, kind of related to religion. Uh, and what is that fact? Both Trump and Biden are teetotalers. Did you know that? I didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trump pretty famously never has uh, been a drinker, but I didn't know that about Biden. But he had an uncle who was an alcoholic, I read, and and he doesn't drink either, according to this report. About a third of Americans, a little more, are teetotalers. Um, And so they're in that minority group of people who follow that dictum that I was taught as a young man in a Southern Baptist church, lips that touch wine shall never touch mine. How's that? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, I, it, it, so the winner so the winner is going to be celebrating in a different than usual way, no champagne, and the loser is going to be mourning in a different way. <laughs> no losing yourself right. in the drink, right? <laughs> You're going to be. Yeah, that's apparently what this would indicate. You're absolutely that's right. right. So. Uh, it is intertwined. A lot of fundamentalist and evangelical yeah. faiths, uh, and of course Mormons as well, and, and other religions have eschewed alcohol historically. That's been part of kind of the fabric of their religion, uh, even to this day. So the, whether or not you drink alcohol is in many ways related to your religion, according to our data. Well, that wraps up our pre-election roundup as we head into the final, final, final stretch. And we will do a review once it's all over and kind of see how the dust settled and talk about that. Uh, but it's been a fascinating ride. And I'm mm-hmm. really glad we got the opportunity with the backing of Baylor's ISR to to really investigate the impact of religion on this election because it was a major factor. Hey, you're absolutely right. This has been, as you say, Nate, Objective Religion, our podcast that is produced in partnership with Baylor's Institute for Studies of Religion. I'm Dr. Frank Newport, sociologist and Gallup senior scientist. And I'm Reverend Nate Brantingham, Presbyterian Minister and Campus Minister at the University of Illinois. And I'm Micah Lambert from Baylor ISR. We love hearing from our listeners, so please give us a call at 254-237-3298 with any questions or comments, or send us an email at objectivereligionpodcast at gmail.com.